Well, good morning. Why don't you stand with me? I want to welcome you today as we get started, kind of kick off this Christmas season. Wish you a Merry Christmas. We've got a great service planned. And we're going to begin with some uh, prayer today, praise it, and then go into worship. You guys ready to go? All right, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here at the start of a brand new season, a Christmas season, and to pursue you. And God, we thank you that this story that began so long ago, the garden, that it came a place in time where you entered into time and space to rescue us as the fallen race. And we sit to celebrate that. And so we want to come as your people. God, we want to be faithful to you. Come as we worship and adore you. We pray you come and meet us now as we come in the name of your son. And you come and speak and lead and heal and do the things that only you can do. And all God's people said, amen. Let's go. The last time we were together, we looked at these opening seven verses of chapter three. And what happens is that the serpent comes to the first couple and he basically tells them that God is not for them, he's against them. It may look like he's for you, but he's really not. He's holding out on you. If you want to experience life to the full, you need to trust me, strike out on your own, rebel against this creator, um, because that's really the path to life. And so the lie is, is that God is not good. The promise is, if you trust me, you follow me, life will get better. And so we watched as they made this decision to follow the serpent, rebel against God, and the moment they do, their lives fall apart, death enters the world in all its forms. We'll be talking about this more uh, next week. But, uh, but as they do, death enters in the world, and their first experience of that is a sense of deep sense of shame, guilt, uh, uh, nakedness, both physically and morally, kind of a moral nakedness. Something is wrong with them. And so instinctively, they're going to go and hide. They're going to go hide behind trees. They're going to get fig leaves, try to, to cover their, their loins. And so they're, they're going to hide from God. And so we're picking up the story right there in chapter 3. We'll pick it up in verse 7. So they, the eyes of both of them were opened. And they realized that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together. They made coverings for themselves, and so they're going to hide. And so the man and the wife, they hear the sound of the Lord God as he's walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Now, interesting. This phrase, in the cool of the day, what it literally says in Hebrew is in the wind of the day. Okay, so in Hebrew, the word wind and the word spirit are the same word. It's ruach. Okay, and so, um, so this like the spirit of God uh, is the wind of God, the wind and spirit, close association there. And so what this actually says is that, that they hear God coming in the wind of the day. Now, how, exactly what that means, how that looks, we don't know. But you get the feeling that this is a positive thing. This is something that happened all the time uh, up to this point, that God would come and meet with them, and it's a positive thing. I remember when my kids were young, they used to love it when I would come home from work. And so I... Some of you have experienced, I'm sure you come home from work, and they're just running to the front door, cannot wait to meet dad, right? I wish they still did that, but when they turn, <laughs> when they turn 30, they stop. But anyway, uh, and now they're just like, hey, whatever. Uh, hey, dad, good to see you. But, uh, but anyway, you know, it's just, it was this beautiful thing, beautiful picture, right, of a dad coming home, your kid's running to see you, uh, just a be- and I think that's how it was before the fall. Hey, God's coming. He's coming on the wind. Let's go meet with him. But this time, uh, it's all changed. Once they, they rebel against God, their relationship's broken. They sense that. And so now they're in fear. First time in their lives, they're afraid. They've never known fear. They're hiding for their lives, hiding with the trees. And so God comes, and uh, they're hiding. It says, from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, the Lord God calls to the man, where are you? And he says, well, I heard you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid. And so God says, well, who told you that you were naked? Uh, have you eaten from the tree I told you not to eat from? Now, interesting here. What we're, we're going to see here is that instantly the man begins to cover up. 
Not only is he covering up with fig trees, not only is he covering up uh, behind the tree, but he's going to cover up the story. You know, we we get that phrase, a cover-up. It's a cover-up. There's a cover-up that's going to go on. He is not going to admit what what he did. Uh, You think the the logical thing to do is like, where are you? Why are you hiding? Oh, God, I'm so sorry. Remember that thing you told me not to do? I did that thing. It's like, I don't know what happened, but something blew up. And I I realized I'm naked. I'm back here. I'm so sorry. Right? That would be the, the logical thing to do. Like, here's why I'm hiding, but he doesn't do that. In fact, he's going to do the opposite. He's going to project blame, and he's going to blame his wife for giving him the fruit, and then he's going to blame God for giving him his wife. (laughs) (laughs) Sound familiar? Uh, And so, so, uh, so he says in verse 11, hey, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree? I command you not to eat. And the man said, hey, it's the woman. (laughs) Yeah, we've been saying that ever since. Uh, it, it's not me, God. I, wouldn't have, I never would have bought this house we can't afford. It's the woman. You know, it's uh, whatever. It's like, I never would have moved from Minnesota out here. It's just the woman. But, uh, whatever. So, uh, so then he says, well, the woman, the catch is that you put with me. <laughs> God, it's really, when you stop and think about this, it's not really my issue. It's really more your issue. Like, you should have seen this coming. Like, you know how she is. And so he says, uh, it's the woman that you put here. Uh, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. And that, that's the story. That's really it. That's what, that's what happened, God. You know that woman you gave me? She gave me some fruit. I don't know. I ate it. That's why I am. Really? That's the story? But God's like, okay, good. I got, I got that. Right? So you know like when your kids are young, and they, they do something, you know they're guilty? Like you know the answer. But you ask him, like, hey, what'd you do? Like, you want to give him a chance, right, to come clean? Uh, he's not coming clean, so God says, okay, let's move next. So I want you to picture this like a courtroom. You got three defendants there. And uh, he starts with Adam, and he's like, okay, I got, I got the story. I got your story. Great, let's move on to the next defendant. <laughs> so he's going to go to the woman. It's like, well, the woman's like, hey, so, so what's up with this? Your husband, he's saying that uh, this is your fault. Like, you gave him the fruit. Is that, is that true? I mean, I gave him to you so that... You, I gave you to him so you could be a helpmeet and so you could help him and kind of rule well as king and queen over creation. And it's just really right. Are you, the, are you the one behind this? Is that the story? And so uh, he turns to the woman and uh, in, in verse 13, he says, the woman, so what is this that you've done? And uh, she does the same thing as her husband. She doesn't uh, own up to it. She's like, yeah, it's not me. It's a snake. So she's going to pass it on. And so he says, well, the serpent, you know, it's, it's not really me, it's him. Uh, he deceived me in IH. So once you catch, neither one of them takes ownership. Neither one of them comes clean. Neither one of them tells the truth. Uh, they're both hiding. They're both still hiding. And so that'll become important later on. And so anyway, so, uh, so, so God's heard what he needs to know now. So now he's going to begin to uh, kind of pass out the sentences in this courtroom. And so he's going to start with the serpent that we know, you know, it's, it's Satan, right? From the New Testament, we know it's Satan. And he says, because you've done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. And so you're going to crawl on your belly and you're going to eat dust all the days of your life. Now, sometimes when people are critical of the Bible and they say, hey, it's just myths, just mythology, they will point to a passage like this and they'll say, well, this is one of those, uh, this is why life is like it is sort of story. You know, like why do snakes crawl in the story? Well, because, you know, once upon a time, and they used to walk around, and so then this thing happened. And so this is what you know, Genesis is kind of giving you this mythological answer to this story. But what I want you to catch is that, uh, that this passage is not necessarily saying that this serpent before this time walked around or that they flew around or like that. 
that, uh, that what God is doing is he's is kind of um, filling this, uh, this reality of how snakes move on the ground. He's filling it with new meaning. He's taking the design of the serpent, and he's like saying, when you look at the serpent, I want you to remember this, right? So a great example of this would be, um, this happens other times in the Bible. A great example of this would be um, in chapter 6 of Genesis when there's the great flood. And uh, remember after Noah comes out in chapter 9, there's a rainbow. And God says, whenever you see the rainbow, I want you to remember my promise that I will never again destroy the earth like this. Like, I don't want you to be afraid that every time it starts to rain in the future, it's like, oh no, it's happening again. Right? So I may destroy the earth again, but not like this. So don't be afraid. And so when you see the rainbow, I want you to think this. Well, this is what's going on here. God's taking something that is the serpent and says, hey, when you see the serpent, remember this. Remember how the story began. Remember the great rebellion. And here's my word to catch. God is saying, you are under a curse, Satan, and that you will eat dust. And in the Old Testament, to eat dust is a way of saying you'll be defeated. And we see it many times in the Old Testament where God is prophesying over a nation will be destroyed, that they will eat dust. They'll be humiliated. They will lose. So what God is saying is that you may have won this round, but you're not going to win. In the end, you're going to be defeated. You will eat dust. We still say that today, right? You pull up to a stoplight, eat my dust. But anyway, um, not that you do that. Um, Or that I do that. Um, Like on a motorcycle, I wouldn't do that. Um, But if anyone did do it, you know what I'm saying. So, um, all right, so, so he's now he's done with the serpent. Uh, well, no, he's got one more thing to say to him, uh, and this is a pretty amazing thing. He says, I will put hostility or enmity, I'll put enmity, hostility between you and the woman, um, and so you, you've tried to make this allegiance, right? You've tried to be this allegiance, you and them, but I'm going to put hostility between this allegiance uh, and between your offspring and hers, which scholars, I'm not really sure, is that talking between demonic forces and the human race? Is that talking between those who follow God and those who follow the, the enemy? Uh, we're not sure, but um, th- there is going to be a war. And then he turns singular, and he says, he, one of these descendants, will crush your head, uh, and you will strike his heel. And so there's a prediction here uh, in the midst. And I want you to get in the midst of this judgment, God gives this amazing promise that one day someone will come from the seed of the woman, from her descendants, who will rise up and there will be a battle between the serpent and the seed and that the seed will win and in the process he will crush the serpent's head. He will deliver a mortal blow, but he will be injured in the process. So we have here is our first promise of Christmas and of course we'll get to that Christmas weekend. We'll come back to that. But anyway, so now he's delivered the judgment on the, the first character in this drama, the serpent, now it's time to move to the woman. Now I want you to catch this. Uh, when the woman is created, I want you to think what we've learned in the Genesis Chronicles. There's two primary relationships in this woman's life. Now, women are all about relationships, right? Most women are very relational. I mean, modern psychology has demonstrated most women are more relational. Most men are more task-oriented, right? This is why in a marriage, a woman wants to talk about her problems. The husband wants to fix her problems. And so when this happens, the wife gets mad because I didn't want you to fix my problem. I wanted just to tell you about my problem. And the husband's like, well, why'd you tell me if you didn't want to fix it? Just because. That's just the relationship, right? So, 
So men tend to be more task-oriented. Women tend to be more uh, relational-oriented. This is why women go to the bathroom in packs. Right? Now, this is a true thing, right? And, and like, like, women do this all the time. I need to go to the bathroom. You want to go with me? Sure. Four of them go. Like, all the time. Now, can you imagine how weird that would be for guys? Hey, guys, you're standing with four of your buddies. I need to go to the bathroom. Anyone want to come? Like, the guys would go, no, that's okay, Frank. You just take care of it on your own. I mean, as guys, we even have protocol in the bathroom. Where you stand, right? Five urinals, you don't stand next, you skip, right? All right, so so guys are task-oriented. Women are more, in general, more relationship-oriented, right? And you're going to see that in the judgments because this is the way God's created us. He's created us this way. And so women are naturally more relational, and you're going to see this here. And the two primary relationships in most women's lives, and especially if I could say, hey, if you had your way with your life as a woman, what would you like it to be? For most women, they're going to say, give me a man who I can trust, who will love me for the rest of my life. I, I want to love him and have this great romance, and I want to love this man for the rest of my life, and then I want to have a family. And so for most women, they say, I want a, a, a great marriage, I want a great family, right? And what we're going to see is that comes out of Genesis. Those are the two primary. Remember when God creates a woman, he brings her to the man and says, this is a helpmeet for you, a wife role. Uh, kings and queens rule together as friends as lovers, wife role. And then, he's, and then she's going to be the mother of the race, as we'll see today. She's going to be the mother of all the living. These are two primaries. And what we're going to see is that both of those primary roles come under the curse. And they're not what they're intended to be. And just a quick sidebar, women, when we, tr- when, when, when we try to make them what they're not, we often make them into a God. And often we make them into altar. So for women, that relationship with the man, those kids so easily become that idol in our life. That, that If we could just have that perfect and life would be good. Uh, for guys, it's often success, a task, it's our careers, we tend to make other things our gods based on our design and based on the fall. And so uh, what's going to happen here is we're going to see both of these primary relationships come under uh, a curse, and they're not what they're supposed to be. And so the first one, he's going to talk about childbirth, uh, talk about this relationship of mother. And so he says, and by, and by the way, these curses that we're going to see unpacked here, that they're kind of symbolic and they're representative of much larger curses. And so God's not going to give all the things that are going to happen on the planet and our lives are going to fall apart. We'll talk next week about how this death works out in human culture at every different level. But, but he's going to give a taste of it, kind of a symbolic representation. And so he starts with this role of mother. And he says, to the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your, chain, your pains in childbearing. Now, the pain of childbirth is one of the greatest pains in life, right? In fact, we still talk about this today. In fact, even men will compare their pain to this. Like, I, I have many friends who have kidney stones. Oh, yeah, it's like worse than childbirth. You know, it's like, they, it's like this is what they say. So we, we still today, we still compare things to the pain of childbirth. And throughout the Bible, the pain of childbirth is often seen as the most painful thing in life. And this is why, you know, we'll talk about at the end of the world, the world will be like in the pains of childbirth or something. That's so why the Bible talks like this, right? So, so remember, before there was anesthesia, 
this was one of the greatest pains in life. Now, today, God has blessed us with epidurals, right? And so uh, I've got a daughter. She's due in one week, right? We have already had the conversation. You walk in the hospital. You say, my name is Bray. Second thing you say is, I want an epidural, right? <laughs> Now, I know that for some of you, you're like, no, I want to be natural. I'm just saying there is nothing natural about this. This is a result of the curse, right? <laughs> See, it's not natural for me to go to my dentist and say, I want to naturally have you work on me. So could you start drilling without Novocaine? Like, that's not natural. I say, doc, start here. Let's like shoot me up, right? So I'm just saying, if you want to go natural, great. <laughs> Good luck with that. All right. So anyway, that's where it starts. It's to the woman, he said, I'll greatly increase your pains in childbearing. Um, in pain, you'll, you'll give birth to children. So the, the first part of the curse is that this can be a much more painful experience than prior to the fall. And he says, but here's the weird thing about it. He says, but your desire will be for your husband. Now, how weird is that? I've always said, if men had babies, we would not have a population problem, right? Because, I mean, this, this is like one of the greatest pains in life, right? If you've watched someone go through this, you go, I'm not doing that. Whatever led to this, I'm not going there, right? That'd be natural. But what's, what's really interesting is God says, that, hey, this is going to be a real, it's going to be a worse pain in life, but you're going to have a desire still. You have a desire to be married. You're going to have a desire for your husband. You're going to have a desire to make love, and you're going to have a desire to have children, and so your desire is going to be for him. And then, and then he says, and he will rule over you. Now, interesting. Prior to the fall, there's a clear leadership role for a husband in a relationship. We talked about this earlier in Genesis. Remember, multiple times I said this. That in the ancient world, to name something was a sign of authority and leadership. And so, Adam named the animals. Adam named his wife in, in chapter 2. We'll see today. He gives her a personal name. He's going to name her. And so he's, he's created as a leader of this relationship. But catch this. It's a leadership of love. It's much like the New Testament where we're told in Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Lay down your life. Sacrifice for her. Kind of put her first. It's a leadership of love. He says, wives, respect that leadership role. He's your head. Respect him. Follow his leadership. And so in Jesus, it's being restored. Right? There's a leadership being restored. So before the fall, there was a leadership role for the husband. It was a leadership of love. And I like to compare it to a dance. Like if you watch a ballroom dancing, someone leads, someone follows. And there's a beautiful harmony of of, uh, of, this, of love that leads to this leadership role where the husband's leading. And so this was a design. Rule together, kings and queens, friends and lovers. Lead well. It's a beautiful relationship uh, of love, of submission, of helping. It's what it's designed. But here's what I want you to catch. With the fall, that all changes. And this leadership role gets warped. And this word in Hebrew for Rule is a strong word. It's a word like dominate. And you think of this in the history of the world. This is the history of the world. You watch through any culture, any time, you watch men dominate women, right? And there is a harshness to this throughout all cultures in all times 
where you see this, this harshness, and you see it come out in violence, you see it in domestic abuse, you see it in just harsh treatment, you see it in polygamy, you see it in sexual abuse, you see it in rape. There is this domination, and it's a result of the fall. The design has been broken. And so God says, okay, this is what you're going to experience in both these two primary relationships of motherhood and being a wife. It's not going to be like it was. Because you rebelled, all creation is going to be broken and going to need to be fixed, right? So, So that's her sentence. And now he's going to move on, and he's going to talk to the man. Now, for the man, the man is the leader of the relationship. He's the king of this first creation. And so as man, he's going to bear the, uh, the final responsibility for this choice. Uh, this is why in the New Testament, we always see this, that the sin of Adam, uh, is, uh, that our sin is traced to the sin of Adam. So like in Romans 5, Paul says it's through one man, sin entered the world and death through sin. He doesn't say through one couple, he says through one man, that the man was the leader. And when you're the leader, you're responsible. Like some of you have uh, kids and you'll, and you'll kind of leave them at home sometimes and you'll say to the oldest one, you're in charge. And when you come back and all hell's broken loose, what do you do? You go to the oldest. What are you doing? Like this, is, this happened on your watch, right? So the same way he's coming to the, the leader of the, the race and he's going to bring his judgment, hold him responsible. So he says to Adam, he said, verse 17, because you listened to your wife, As followers of Jesus, for all of us, men, women, or children, there is one voice that should rule all other voices in our head. That's God's voice. And Adam made this classic air of listening to his wife's voice over God's voice. You know, back in chapter 2, he was told to leave his Father and mother, or Moses says, in the future, it's why it's going to be, you're going to leave your father and mother, and you're going to cleave, hold fast. In Hebrew, devak. You're going to cling to your wife. But there's one voice higher than all voices, and that's God's voice. And he chose to listen to his wife's voice over God's voice. And whenever we listen to anyone's voice in our life, higher than God's voice, leads to problems. And so he says... Because you listened to your wife, you ate from the tree, which I command you, you must not eat. Here comes his sentence. Cursed is the ground because of you. And through painful toil, you'll eat of it all the days of your life. Now catch this. If the woman's primary description, she's going to be a, a relational being for her husband, for her kids. Guys are task-oriented, right? Where the worker bees going to provide for her family. His job was to care for the garden. To care for it, protect it, guard it. Right? He didn't do that. Instead of guarding it, he allowed the enemy to come and to take it over. But catch this, that when he was created, the ground was created for Adam as a gift. It was from the ground that Adam was created. Remember that? That from, Eve was created from the man, but Adam was created from the ground. It was a source of life for him. He came created from the ground. And then, Adam was made king over all the ground to rule it and to care for it. He was to be over the ground. And it was going to be the ground that would provide for him the sustenance for him and his family. It was a gift, God's greatest gift. He's got meaningful work through the ground. But here's what I wanted you to catch. When he rebelled against his creator, 
the ground became his enemy instead of a friend. And now he's going to have to wrestle with the ground. And we're still doing it today, aren't we? You think about our jobs, our livings. I don't care if you have the best job in the world. It's still hard. It's still difficult. There's still long commutes. There's still office politics, whatever it is. It's like it's hard. And you think of our lives, and I always think of third world countries as we have it so easy here. You get third, third world countries, you watch people out in the rice paddies from the break of day to the, the end of dawn, often working for, you know, half the world lives on a, a, a dollar a day or less. Backbreaking work. This is a hard world to make a living in. And so God says the ground that was given as a gift will now be cursed. And catch this. This curse is representative of a curse over all the cosmos. And we'll talk about that the last week of the series. That's why in Romans 8, Paul says that all creation is groaning, waiting for its liberation into the freedom of the sons of God. It's, it's waiting for that day when the curse will be removed, all creation will be restored. And so the creation comes under a, the, a curse. And for Adam, what this means is that, uh, verse 18, it'll produce thorns and thistles for you. You're going to wrestle with the ground, and you'll eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow, you'll eat your food. And then catch this, until you return to the ground since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Catch this. What he's saying is the ground that was given as a gift will now become an enemy. You will wrestle with the ground your whole life. At the end of the day, the ground will win. And you will end up back under the ground, six foot under, becoming ground again. Wow. And so now the sentences have been passed out, and so we're ready to move on. So Adam is going to name, there is a leadership role, he's going to name his, his wife Eve, uh, which uh, may be related in Hebrew to the word life, we're not sure. But uh, named his wife Eve because she'll become the mother of all living. And the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife uh, and, and clothed them. And I want you to catch this, this the tenderness of God. Like, I don't know how you picture this. Like, often we read Genesis 3, and God comes in the garden, and where are you? Even the tone of his voice, like, how do you hear that in your head? You know, do, do you hear that as a, a tender father? Where are you? I'm missing you. Or do you hear us? where are you, kids? Right? The belt's coming off. You know? Like, I told you not to do that. And like, how do you hear that? And what we're going to see is that, that in this passage, God is rendering judgment. And that's what we want him to do, right? Because like, if you've ever been ripped off in business, you've ever been ripped off in an auto accident, you've ever maybe gone through a divorce, maybe a divorce you didn't even want, and then your spouse turns on you and they start telling lies and you're going to court over the custody of your kids. The last thing you want when you go to court, the last thing you want is an unrighteous judge. The last thing you want is a judge to go, well, you know what, yeah, I know they did that to you, but we'll just let it go. Like, you, you want a judge that's going to do what's right and good and fair. And so God is coming as a judge of all the earth. He told you, don't do this. He said you're going to die. You want a judge that's going to follow through, you know, on, hey, this is what I said. You want a judge that's going to do what's right. But I want you to catch this. I really believe that this is more like a father who's coming with a broken heart, that it's angry judge. And you see this because when, when he comes to the garden, I mean, first of all, he's not going to, you know, they don't die immediately. He's going to have mercy. They're going to be able to continue the race. Uh, he's going to provide right in the middle of that, of this promise of, of a great redeemer who's going to come. But we're going to see it here where God tenderly comes. These kids don't know what to do. They, they're trying to cover themselves with, you know, like fig leaves. How's that going to work out? They're going out into this wild world that's under a curse 
They don't know how to make clothes. And so we see God tenderly coming and catch this, sacrificing the first animals to cover their sin. And so God tenderly provides for them their first set of clothes, kind of shows them how they're going to need to do that. And so uh, in verse 22, the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, which seems to be a reference to the Trinity again, uh, like we saw in chapter 1. And he says, he now knows good and evil, just like Satan had said, and he must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take from the tree of life and eat and live forever. And so there's a judgment. I said that you would die. Uh, we're going we're gonna to bar you from access. You're not, this, is, this is what I said is going to happen. But I want you to catch this. This very well may be an act of mercy as well as an act of judgment. You know, my father right now is very sick. He's uh, still at home, but he's in hospice at home. And it, it's a very painful thing to watch someone that you love has been a very strong man just deteriorate and go down to where uh, not able to take care of himself or whatever, and you just see his body and mind wasting away. And I want you to imagine what would it be like to have deteriorating bodies but never be able to die. And so this may have been an act of mercy as, as well as an act of judgment, but uh, God says uh, in verse 22, so the Lord banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he'd been taken, and after he drove the man out, he, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim. That's a plural for a certain kind of angelic being. So cherub is a singular, cherubim. Anything in Hebrew, in Hebrew you see, I am, im, is plural. Cherubim uh, and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way of the tree of life. So apparently, as a race, we're created to be immortal. How that would have gone on over time, we don't know exactly the same form, but, but we're not created to die. Death is the great enemy and so I want you to step back as we come to the end of chapter 3 and, and see where we've been in this series. And we start with this, this story, this epic story of this incredible God who's this amazing, who is, we, is brilliant, and he is uh, a powerful, and he's creative, uh, and he is personal, and he is generous, and he's beautiful, and he's good, right? Who out of his great love creates all of this creation, uh, everything leading up that first week to the creation of the first man, the first woman, to rule together for him as king and queen, friends and lovers over this creation. Uh, and he creates a special home, this nature preserve, incredible river running through it, all the fruit trees, beautiful, gorgeous, they have everything they need, love relationship with one another, love relationship with God, everything's set for them to begin to move. And I want you to see in this one act of disobedience, it all crumbles. And I want you to picture this, our first parents, this young couple, it's like they're being evicted from their first home, this dream home. And it says in the text that God drove them out. I, want you, I don't know if you've ever had little kids, and maybe you have to take them to ER or something, you have to take them somewhere, they're just really scary for them, and they, you just, they have to go. Have you ever had that experience, you're pulling your kids, they're like holding on the door frame or the crib where they're screaming crying, and it's so sad, but you know they have to go. This is what has to happen. So you have to pull them away. You have to drive them out. And I really picture it like this. This first couple is shattered. Their, their dream life is gone. Their dream house is gone. Their life is burned down. They're full of fear and anxiety and guilt, and they're being cast out into this now wild world that is now under a curse. They're like, they're like foreigners, like refugees, Going out into this harsh land, 
dress like cavemen, right? Like the Flintstones or something. They're kind of dressed, they're just kind of going out to try to make their way in this tough world. And this is a tragic view. And this is a view the Bible describes. This is our story as a race. This is what we were created for. This is the life we were created for. This was life with God, with one another. We were to thrive, and yet because of our rebellion, we've been cast out. And the story of the Bible is how God is going to work in history to restore us and recreate the garden and lead us back to the tree of life again. This is the story we're part of. And that's the story we're going to be looking at in the next uh, three weeks. But today what I want to do is uh, I want to talk today about two, what I'm calling kind of big picture realities about life, about God, our relationship with God, our relationship with life that flow out of this. I think are absolutely critical for us as followers of Jesus to understand if we want to move into the new life God has for us and thrive. And so there in your note sheet, you have a section, and it's called the realities, the three C's, choice, consequence, and confession. And so we've got two principles, three, three C's. Let's jump in. Uh, the first one goes like this, that real choices have real consequences. Real choices have real consequences. Now, honestly, I think this is hard for us. I think for us as a culture, this is getting increasingly hard for us to understand and buy into. I think at one level, we get this. At one level, we understand you make a wrong choice, you pay the price. Uh, there's, there's choices we need to hold each other accountable. And that we, at one level, as a race, we as a culture, we understand this. But in our culture today, it's getting increasingly hard for us to hold on to this because as, as a culture, there's almost like um, we're really big on choice, but we're really small on consequence. Like, we're, we're losing this, this connection. Uh, and right here at the beginning of the human story, God says, let me explain to you how life works. And there is this account that's this epic account of, of, of real choice and real consequence. And this is something, like I said, as a culture, we're struggling with. So let me give you a couple examples. Uh, how many of you remember years ago that incident at McDonald's? Like, where that woman... The woman got the hot coffee and spilled it on herself and then burned herself and then she sued McDonald's, right? Now, when you hear about that, doesn't that like drive you crazy? It's like, are you serious? Like, you want your coffee hot, right? Like, when I go to Starbucks, I say, I want it hotter than hot. Like, I go in, my order is I want a, a, a mocha, uh, I, I want it easy whip, and I want it at 195 degrees, and they're looking at it like 195 degrees. They ought to even drink that. It's like, well, hey, boiling's 212. Coffee's hot. Could you just, I want my mocha like coffee, right? It's like, I want it hot. And so when they make it for me, then they always go like this. Okay, be really careful. You know, be very careful. Like, you know, well, do you have any special container? Got any gloves for me? Or, you know. So um, <laughs> now I understand that I'm taking a risk, right? And if I go out to my car and I'm driving away and I spill my coffee and I, I get a boil on my leg or whatever, I mean, that's... Like, that's what happens when you get hot coffee, right? And it's like, how crazy. And Nicole, he's like, well, McDonald's served me hot coffee. Like, I, I shouldn't happen, you know? Like, I should have the right to hot coffee, but not responsibility for hot coffee. Uh, I remember one of the ones that drives me craziest is, uh, I remember years ago, I think it was from the LA Times, so it's been a while and I can't remember, but there was a story, some of you may remember it, of a couple of thieves who were trying to break into a school in LA Unified. 
And so they're up on the roof and they're trying to break in and that one of the guys falls through a skylight. And so of course he gets injured, right? And he sues the school district for not having safer skylights. And he won. Like, are you kidding me, right? And so we are becoming a culture that's all about choice but nothing about consequence. And so, and so we, we want to pretend that we should have all the choices, but there's no consequence, or at least no serious consequence. We're okay with consequence, nothing serious, nothing severe, nothing that can't be reversed. So you see it in our criminal justice system, right? It doesn't matter what someone's done, always another chance. Right? You see it, uh, you see it in, in our work. Some of you are employers. In some industries today or some, some jobs, it's almost impossible to fire someone. Like you talk with people and they got this lazy employee that has no passion for their work and does a lousy job. And why don't you fire him? Oh, I can never do that. There'd be lawsuits and there'd be this and the union, whatever the thing is. You see it in sports, right? So many times it's like, no matter what someone does, how many times they test positive? Well, always a second. Like we, we have become a culture that believes that no matter what you do, there's always a second chance. And here's what I want to catch is the Bible tells us right from the beginning, that is a lie. What it's telling us right from the beginning is that real choices have real consequences. So choose wisely. And you see it in this passage. Right here at the beginning of the story, the human story, right here at the beginning, God says, this is the way life works that I've designed life, that there is a cause and effect universe. Choice has consequences. Choose wisely. And so you look at this story. I mean, let me ask you, was God clear with them? Hey, don't eat from the tree. You can do whatever you want. One exception, don't eat from the tree. If you eat from the tree, you will what? Die. And yet I think the reality is probably you feel this. I've struggled with this. Is I read this chapter, isn't there a part of you that says, God, that was a little bit harsh? Am I the only one that's really, does that really seem fair? Is that really right? Shouldn't they got a second chance? I mean, it's just a little thing. It's just a piece of fruit. Isn't there a part of you that says, hey, God should have come and said, hey, listen, what did you do? I'm going to count to 10. (laughs) And if you do that again. You know, for those of you raising kids, can I tell you something? One of the most important things about being a parent, you need, your kids need to know two things. They need to know you love them deeply, and they need to know don't mess with you. <laughs> that when you say something, you mean it. You say something, you mean it, and you're not going to count to 10, and you're not going to give it 18 chances. I'm telling you something. I, I feel so sorry if I'll be in a supermarket or a store and I'll see some three-year-old who's holding his mom hostage <laughs> on aisle 18. And the mom is pleading and begging and bargaining and offering. And, and like, well, if you just come, I'll give you this when we get home or I'll buy this toy and count to 10. And it's like, she's lost control and the kid's three years old. It's like, hey, you're a lot bigger. Make it happen. Right? Okay? But isn't there a part of us that says when, when God says, hey, don't do it, and this is what happened, when he does it, we go, hey, that doesn't seem fair. And all that shows is what children of our culture, 
that we become. See, the reality is, is that life is serious business. If God wanted robots, he'd create robots. He created us with free will, but he's given us choices. He's given us choices about our finances. He's given us choices about our marriage. He's given us choices about dating. He's given choices about sexuality. He's given choices about our relationship with him. He's given choices about our work ethic, about our education. God has given us choices, and choice matters. There's a path to life. There's a path to death. Choose wisely. You know, when my oldest daughter was 15, um, she was excited about getting her driver's license. And I was so excited because a um, great kid and loved her. And, and I realized sometimes you might have a kid that's really, you're not sure you want them to have that, you know, the thing right now. And I get that. But in this case, she was a great kid. And I really trusted her. And I couldn't wait for her to get a driver's license because uh, I could stop driving her. Um, no, but beyond that, I remember for me uh, what, what having a driver's license did in my life and how much freedom and joy and friendship and dating, all the things that happened you couldn't do before when you could stop driving, uh, uh, riding at 10 speed and you could actually get around, right? So 15 and a half, I mean, as early as I can, I get a motorcycle so now I can get around. So uh, I remember for me what, how big that was and I was so excited and so she wanted to get her license the very day that she turned 16. I was all for that. Uh, Lynn had some physical issues back and neck so she couldn't drive with my daughter because you know how that is, always sketchy at the beginning how they drive. So, um, so I was the one who was doing the 40 hours in the car with her, you know, supervising her and teaching her and that day came and, and she was, you know, we practiced so hard and now at 16 she has an appointment at the DMV which means you wait for two hours instead of three and so uh, she's going to go in and so we're sitting there and we're waiting, right, for, this, for the, the the guy to come out, like the sergeant to come out, you know, yearly, uh, and her, her tester, and we're sitting there, and uh, I am so nervous because I am just pulling for her so hard. We have worked so hard, and I want her to succeed and remember everything that we've studied, and hopefully she's not going to freeze up. And we've, before we got there, we got there an hour early, and we drove all the routes that they might take. Look for any like blind intersections, real 15. You know, we just we had done all we could, right? And I was just so excited, so nervous. And she takes off, and I'm like calling Lynn, and was just went, and you know, this whole thing. And so she finally comes back and she passes. Yeah, and I'm so excited. We go out to lunch together and we celebrate. And her birthday's in September, September 24th. So the time of the year is still staying light pretty late. And I still remember that afternoon that's, you know, getting towards sunset. I'm standing outside. I still remember where I was, where she was, where the car was. And she comes out to me and she says, hey, dad, you mind if I take the car and go out tonight? (laughs) And can I tell you, my first reaction honestly was awesome. Yes, I'm so excited for you. Yes. And I reached into my pocket, and I grabbed my keys, and I handed them out. And when I got to about here, I was like, oh. (laughs) And what I realized in that moment was I was handing her the keys to life and the keys to death. And that her life, handled well, right choices, would lead to new vistas, new futures. Exciting, so happy. But one wrong decision. One wrong turn. One crazy driver behind her. And her life could be snuffed out like that or damaged forever. 
then when, here's what I want you to catch. God, here in Genesis 3, at the beginning of the story, here's, here's the message. I am giving you the keys to your life. I'm giving you keys to your sexuality, giving keys to your finance, giving you keys to your relationship with me, keys to your relationship with other, keys to your work, keys to your, I'm giving you keys. Choose wisely. Because the decisions you make are gonna have consequences and many times powerful consequences. And you know, throughout the Bible, we see this over and over again. And one of the places that stands out is the book of Deuteronomy. You know, the, the book of, the, remember Moses wrote the first five books of the Bible. I think I'm like the Chronicles of Moses. The story that starts in the garden in Genesis, ends in Deuteronomy 30, 31, ends there. And in chapter 30, Moses is talking to the nation of Israel. They've come out of Egypt, 40 years in the wilderness. They're ready to go in. And catch this, Moses can't go in because of a choice he made a consequence that he made, very heavy. He, he doesn't want them to be like him. He wants them to learn from his mistakes. So he's saying, you know, hey, you're going this land. He said, uh, God loves you. He's got this amazing land for you. He wants to bless you in every area of your life. And so he says, so here's what you need to do. Catch this. You need to listen carefully to his voice and you need to hold fast, devak to him. Sounds a lot like Genesis chapter three, doesn't it? We're gonna you didn't listen to your you didn't listen to my voice, you listened to your wife. And instead of clinging to me, you devoked, clung to your wife. You listened to your wife. And so here at the end of the story of Moses' life, God's gonna speak. And I want you to see this there in your note sheet. Genesis chapter, I mean uh, Deuteronomy chapter 30. Where God says, see, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. Now choose life that you and your children may live and that you may love the Lord your God. Catch this, listen to his voice and hold fast, devout to him. Sounds a lot like the garden, doesn't it? The story that starts in the garden for Moses ends in Deuteronomy, bookend by the same, same charge. There's a path to life, there's a path to death, so choose wisely. Now, some of you will say, but isn't there grace? Like, where's the grace? Isn't that the message about like, grace? And here's what I want you to catch. We see grace all over this. We see grace in God saying, I'm not gonna kill you right away, you're gonna start the race. We see grace in that uh, God is coming to them and promises one day a redeemer will come. We see grace and that God personally makes the the the, the skins for them, the clothes for them. But what I want you to catch is the grace doesn't remove the consequence. And many times in our life as Christians, we bought into this easy forgivism thing where it's like, okay, I'll just do it and then I'll ask God to forgive me. Hey, there's a reason he told you not to do it. It'll lead to death. And yes, will he forgive you? Yes, he'll forgive you, but it doesn't remove the consequences necessarily. You can ignore your kids and make work your top priority and not bring them up in Jesus and not love them well. And then when, you're, when the kids are 18, you can say, man, I really screwed up my life. I need to get back on track. God, would you forgive me? Of course he'll forgive you. We love you. Yes, he'll live you. But that doesn't mean all those consequences. We passed away. You can have an affair on your, your spouse 
and you're coming, call, coming back to God, God, I'm so sorry, it was wrong, will you forgive me? Of course he'll forgive you, but it doesn't mean that your marriage will be saved. You can overspend on your credit cards for years and not listen to the voice of the Lord that he's been telling you, you need to deal with this. Will he forgive you? Yes, but you still may go bankrupt and lose your house. You see, real choices have real consequence. So choose wisely. Right here at the beginning of our epic tale, God is saying this is how life is for real, not a game. Choose wisely. But you say, well, but Mike, what happens if I've already screwed up? Or what happens when I do screw up? What happens when I choose death over life? What happens when I don't listen to the voice of the Lord? I listen to other voices. What happens when I don't hold fast to him? I hold fast to someone or something else. Well, that leads to number two. And number two goes like this. That real confession leads to real life. It's interesting, when we're far from God, when we've not been listening to his voice, when we've been clinging to something else, and as a result, our life has fallen apart, or an area of our life has fallen apart, and there's serious consequences, first step back. If you had to summarize it in one word, the word is confession. And we often misunderstand that word. I'll come back to it in a minute. But the first step back is confession. And I want you to catch, this is exactly what our first parents didn't do. When God came to them and said, what have you done? You notice how it's the last thing they did? They didn't want to come clean. They didn't want to own it. They didn't want to say, well, here's what happened, and here's what you said, and here's what we did, and this is why it's like, what should we do? They didn't come clean. They wanted to hide. They wanted to hide behind the trees. They wanted to hide behind the fig leaves. When God calls them out, they want to blame, project, get defensive. And here's what I want you to catch. In our lives, when we're off track, when we've listened to other voices, when we've clung to other things, and we're experiencing death as a result, the only way back The first step back is a step of confession. And by confession, I would describe it as radical honesty. That's what it's about. A radical honesty with God, with ourselves, perhaps others in our life about here's what I did, here's why I did it, and here's what the results of that are. And this is one thing that often in Christian circles we misunderstand. You know, when we talk about confession, I think most of us understand confession's a big thing to God, right? When we first became a Christian, one of the first verses we probably learned was 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So early on, someone tells us, hey, confession's a big deal, and so you need to confess your sins. So when you've sinned, maybe at the end of every day, you need to tell God you're sorry for anything because if you don't, then, then, you know, then he won't answer your prayer. And so somehow early on, we, we learn that confession's important, but for us, it often becomes this ritual. We don't really understand the logic of it. We don't understand the relationship of it. It just becomes this thing we do. I don't know why it's so important, but it seems to matter to God. I need to tell him I was wrong, and so that's what thing. But what we miss is this is a relational issue. It's a relational issue. That when we've not listened to the voice of the Lord, we've not clung to him, when we have suffered the consequences, the first step back is just to come clean. It's just to come and say, God, this is what I did. And to stop hiding, to come out from the trees, stop hiding behind the loin, and say, God, this is what I did. And just be radically honest. And this is so hard for us as a race. And I think the reason it's so hard is often because of fear or pride. You know, often it's hard to admit I have a problem. Because if I admit it, I don't know what to do with it. 
right? I'd rather pretend I don't have an anger problem. I don't have an angry problem. I just got crazy kids. If they weren't so crazy, I wouldn't get angry. Anyone would get angry, right? It's my wife. She just pushes my buttons, right? It's easier to just project blame than to just admit because we're afraid once I have an anger problem and admit it, now what do I do? I don't know how to fix it. It's easier to say, I just like the taste of beer. I know I have six to eight every night after dinner, but I don't have a problem. It's just, I just, I just like, it's the way I unwind, you know? Well, I don't have a problem with pornography. It's probably not the best thing, but it's not really hurting anyone. It's kind of a victimless crime. Well, yeah, we probably should get our finances under order, but I mean, the average American has, you know, way too much. I'm just right, I'm average. So, so whatever it is, it's so easy, and this is our natural instinct, to hide, to pretend, to project. But here's what I want you to catch. As long as we pretend, we can never be healed. The first step to healing is radical honesty. You see this in the New Testament. You know, Jesus comes and he portrays himself as a doctor. And you stop and think about it. If you've got a serious disease, the greatest doctor in all the world cannot help you until you're willing to come clean and tell them what your symptoms are. You know, it's like you have these pains in your body or abdomen, whatever, you go in and your wife says, well, how the doctor appointment? Well, it went, you know, great. No, would you tell them about your pain? Nah, I didn't like the greatest doctor in the world, until you're honest, the greatest doctor can't help you. And here's what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches until we're honest and willing to be radically honest with God, even God can't help us. And Jesus compared himself to a doctor. When he came, he's hanging out with the religious leaders of his day, right? They, they are unhappy with him for so many reasons. But one of the biggest reasons, he's hanging out with losers. He hangs out with people that are obviously on the path to death. They've obviously made the wrong choices. They're not walking with God. They're far from God. They're on the path to death. So why do you hang with him? And here's what Jesus said. I didn't come to help healthy people. I came to help sick people. And catch this. What he's really saying is until you're willing to admit you're sick, even Jesus can't help you. And so in our lives, hey, we realize we're off track, far from God, been disobedient. First step back is confession to do what our first parents didn't do, is to come out from the trees and say, God, here's what I did, and here's what I'm experiencing, and I'm full of fear, and I'm full of guilt, and I'm full of shame, and I don't know how to fix it, and, and here I am, but if you can help me, would you help me? Because what you find then is that Jesus came and what he said is, I did not come to condemn the world. I came to save. But until we're willing to be honest, we will never get well. Does that make sense? And as we go into this, uh, we kind of wrap this service up, here's what I want to do. As we go in this Christmas season, I want to challenge you and I want to ask you, is there any area of your life you've been hiding from God, hiding from yourself, hiding for others? There's a problem you've been pretending there isn't there. But there is an issue that you know you've not been listening for his voice. You have not been clinging to him. You've been clinging to something else and it's brought death in your life and you've been projecting, pretending, blaming, whatever. What a beautiful thing at the start of this Christmas season as we would go before God and come clean and say, I don't, I don't know to fix this. I don't even know how this works. But here's what I've done. And I'm going to come to you as the great physician. Can you heal me?
And right now we're going to pray, and then the band's going to come out, and they're going to sing a song over us. So I just sit back, take it in, listen to the words. And if there's an area in your life you need to come clean, come out behind the bushes, come out behind the trees. Let's do that and start the healing. We get back on track, the path of life. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now as your church, and we want to come out behind bushes. We want to, we want to come out, drop our guard, stop, to, stop pretending, stop defending, stop projecting. I want to say, God, here's who I am, and I need you. I'm a broken person, and I need you. And would you meet me now? Would you heal me? Would you get me back in the path of life as I come under your leadership? In Christ's name, Jesus, I come. And so do you believe that? Do you believe he rescues that and saves? You know, your life, my life, he's rescued us. He's saved us from the curse that we bear as a race. The curse that was over our lives for our rebellion, both as a race and personally, that's been taken away by the cross of Jesus Christ. Through his death and resurrection, we have been saved. We have relationship with God now, not based on our performance, based on his. And yet for all of that, when we say he rescues and saves, we don't just mean we, he rescues us from the consequence of our sin and eternal death, separation from him, from hell. What we're saying is that Jesus is alive and he rescues us and saves us today. He saves us from our anger. He saves us from our pornography. He saves us from our addictions. He saves us from our wrong perspectives. He saves us from our hatred. He saves us from our self-centered lives. He saves us from our laziness. He saves us to be the people we were created to be, to be transformed and changed, to be like him. Amen? And so we worship him because he rescues and saves. Past tense, present tense, future tense. He rescues and saves. And I hope you can be with us every week as we go through this end of this series through December, as we watch him, how he rescues and saves. Next week, we'll be talking about this death that breaks out into the culture after this at every level, after this great sin at every level. We'll look at a New Testament passage that comes back, comments, commentary on Genesis 3, as we see why the great Redeemer had to come and why we so desperately need him to rescue and save. So I hope you can be with us next week. Don't forget, till after the service, uh, we'll have a prayer team over here to the right to pray with you about anything you have going on. Until then, God bless you. Have a great week as we move into the season of celebrating the one who rescues and saves. Amen? Amen. God bless.